0: This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, crying boys and angry mummies, more cursed objects in fact and fiction. And looking at that title, I've just realised you could totally read that a different way. <laughs>
0: totally could.
1: <laughs> so you're going to have to listen to the episode to get the true context of what we're offering here.
0: This isn't about um, uh, <laughs> toddler tantrums, toddler maybe. tantrums, and smacking your smacking your children or anything like that at all. Um, yes, <laughs> guys, it's the spooky season. It's begun. Woo-hoo.
1: And this year, because we had so much fun last year, we are once again doing an entire October dedicated to episodes of The Spooky Persuasion.
0: Yes. I think it's just... As I said, We, as Jules said, we, we had so much fun with it last year. Um, and uh, we thought oh, the entirety of October, which in this case is going to be, there's going to be five episodes of spooky um, subjects um, and... We're really excited for it. We hope you guys are excited for it. We're going to sort of touch on some of the subjects that we brought up last year around this time, including this episode, which is sort of our our, our sequel to last year's Cursed Objects episode, yeah. which was a really good episode.
1: Um, It was. I I re-listened to it, and I'd almost forgotten how much fun we had with that episode, if that doesn't sound crazy.
0: No, we really, really did. I also re-listened to it um, quite naturally recently, before we'd actually discussed doing this episode. Um, And... I remember I was listening to it and I was like, we need to do this again because it, it would just, we just had a lot of fun. And I think that a lot of our listeners really enjoyed hearing about these cursed objects as well. Hopefully, we are not going to have the same technical difficulties um, that we had <laughs> last time we did the, the cursed objects episode because last time we did, we talked about all these cursed things. And then we had this series of sort of bad luck when it came to actually <laughs> getting the episode out.
1: Yeah, putting the episode together, yeah. those editing difficulties. There was, um, I think, at one point it looked like your half had gone missing entirely. Yeah, it was just really weird. Yeah. Um, so yes, obviously, once again, this is kind of a a light-hearted, in theory, look at uh, cursed objects of which there are many, many, and we could even do another series. We could. I've got enough material that we could probably do one well, next year and the year after, etc. I'm I'm totally down. I'm totally down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we obviously went into a fair bit of detail at the beginning last year of what exactly a cursed object is. So we're just going to do a very brief recap. And if you guys want more detail, then check out, um, is it Dolls, Diamonds and Chairs? I think it's called. It's our cursed objects thing from last year. And appropriately, this one is kicking off spooky season for us this year as well. Yes!
0: (laughs) By the way, for anyone who who's going spooky season, what the hell are you talking about? We're talking about the fact it is October, guys. We're coming. We're coming up to Samhain or Halloween or whatever you'd like to call it. Um, and I mean just in general as well, because it's not just October which is spooky. I mean, Christmas is surrounded by ghost stories and things like that. It's it's the winter months, guys. We're we're going. We're into we're into autumn. We're going into winter. This is this is the season. So I'm super stoked. <laughs>
1: yep. Well, we're, we're, we're obviously very excited and there's going to be all sorts of grisly and spooky things to talk about in the coming weeks. Yes.
0: So, so what do we just, mean? Just do a, oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> so I was going to say, let's just do a quick recap on what we mean by cursed.
0: Yes. So um, as we said before, cursed, does it, it's not the same as haunted or possessed.
1: No, it's not. So we would say something is haunted if there is kind of an intelligence attached to it. So, um, for example, your classic white lady, grey lady moving around a a building that is is supposed to be haunted. Mm -hmm. It's haunted by that specific entity in theory. Um, In terms of something being possessed, it's (laughs) usually an object that kind of moves around in theory by itself under the intelligence of something that is is inhabiting that object. So, you know, we talked about Annabelle the doll last last time. we're yeah, <laughs> not and... going to go into that again. But yeah, technically, that is a possessed doll.
0: Yeah, I think I think we just we had to talk about Annabelle because Annabelle's so famous. Um, but yeah, that that's that's possessed rather than cursed.
1: Yeah, but in terms of cursed, basically, it's an object who, which for some reason tragedy just happens around it or it gets passed on to someone else and bad luck befalls them and then the same when they pass it on to somebody else yeah so it, it, it's the thing left standing when the rubble of the ruination <laughs> all around it.
0: yeah absolutely and sometimes it can be it can have had a curse put on it so for instance again you know we talked about some cursed chairs last time you know people (laughs) who've who've literally put a curse on it and said no one shall sit in this chair and anyone who does dies you know um so that's that's a, a curse which has been placed on something and sometimes again a cursed object can just sort of be an object which has somehow kind of seemed to suck up all of the the misfortune that it's witnessed and just carried it with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And in some cases, it's just an object which has been there when a lot of different and quite tragic things have happened and it you know there may not actually be a curse attached at all it may just be kind of like this object has seen a lot of shit
0: yeah (laughs) and and you know sometimes it's sometimes it's just a practical thing like (laughs) the thing that always gets me is that you you see these sort of images where it's just they're like a you know the a fire in a church and stuff like that and they're like everything else burned but look the um the, the, the crucifix at the top didn't burn and people pointed out well yes the crucifix didn't burn on account of the fact that gold has a, has a higher melting point than wood higher burning point than wood um, so you know sometimes it's literally just the thing which was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to survive everything um, and has borne witness to tragedy Um, instead of actually necessarily being the cause of tragedy.
1: Yes. Um, And as we've said before, anything can be cursed. You know, a person and a place can can technically considered be cursed. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: But we are looking specifically at objects because it's slightly beyond what we can get into in this episode to look at people and places.
0: Yep. So we've got a a whole bunch for you. um, And hopefully some of these... Some of these you may be familiar with and some of them may, you may never have heard of. So, Jules, I'm going to sit back and allow you to regale.
1: Okay, well, I would like to start with Udzi the Iceman. Utzi the Iceman is a 5,300-year-old corpse found frozen in the ice in the Utsal Alps on the border of Austria and Italy. Um, he is currently residing at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology, Bolzana, in Italy.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, he was discovered on the 19th of September in 1991 by two German tourists who were hiking in the Alps. Okay. Um, he has, you know, scientists were immediately very excited and they went and <laughs> chipped him out of the ice. And he was subjected to many tests, everything from having his, you know, density of his bones um, measured to having the contents of his stomach investigated to having what sort of diseases he had. Hmm. Um And including a a full forensic exam to determine how he died. Uh, Spoiler alert, guys, he had an arrow embedded in his shoulder and traumatic head wounds which would have killed him. (laughs) So think murder.
0: Spoiler alert.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is the ultimate cold case. (laughs) As in, the chances of us ever actually fingering a victim, as it were, for this are are very, very slim because they're probably molecules by now. (laughs) Mm. Yeah but we do know he was murdered. Anyway, um after all this, you know, it uh Italy and Austria both wanted to claim Otzi the Iceman. Um but in the end it was decided that he was technically found on the Italian side of the Alps and this is how he ended up in bolzana Um anyway, the bad luck started in 2004.
0: Right. Uh,
1: helmut Simon, uh, one of the German tourists who found Otzi in the first place died aged 67 during a blizzard while hiking almost exactly where they found Ultsi in the first place.
0: Okay, all right. Not so, <laughs> so a that's good a, start.
1: <laughs> that's that's not a It's kind of like, a, okay, well, it, you know, you're, you're relatively old and a blizzard blows up and sometimes these things happen. Um, okay, an hour after Simon's funeral, Dieter Varnica, who had been, you know well enough, hale and hearty enough to lead the rescue attempt for Simon, you know, during the blizzard, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, died of a cardiac arrest. He was aged 45 and had no previous <laughs> known heart problems. So this is an hour after the funeral. It's unlikely the funeral itself or even the rescue attempt kind of put enough strain on his heart to have caused problems. So mm-hmm. that's a little bit, hmm, okay, that's not so great. Uh, the following year, Conrad Spindler, one of the first experts to examine Ötzi, died of multiple sclerosis, age 55. The disease was discovered only a few days after he'd examined Ötzi in the first place. Right. Uh, not long after that, Rainier Henn, a forensic examiner of Ötzi, the guy who decided categorically that he'd been murdered, died in a road traffic accident, age 64, on the way to give a lecture about the ice map. <laughs> okay <laughs> then we have uh, kurt fritz who helped uh recover old by chipping him out of the ice who died in an avalanche age 52 presumably he was in the alps at the time it wasn't just like he was walking down a street and yeah, the vans and <laughs> snow
0: landed <on. laughs> i was gonna say that's that would that be, would be incredibly spooky. <laughs> spooky. <laughs> uh,
1: Shortly after that, uh, Renia Holtz, a filmmaker who documented the recovery, died, died aged 47 of a brain tumour. The brain tumour was again discovered not long after they chipped Otzi out of the ice. Uh, the final victim, if we can call them that, is Tom Loy. Tom Loy was a molecular biologist who identified four different types of blood on Otzi's clothing and tools and, you know, provided... you know, the the forensic evidence that he was murdered rather than Mm. it wasn't an accidental hammering of the head and arrow in the shoulder situation. Um, (laughs) Someone had deliberately tried to kill him. Uh, Lloyd died aged 63 of a blood condition diagnosed just shortly after he'd examined Otzi and found those four different types of blood, which is somewhat ironic.
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) So ever since then, to the best of our knowledge, nothing else has, has really happened. But that's seven deaths interconnected with Utsi the Iceman and his recovery from the Alps in one year, which is a pretty intense body count for any sort of object.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, damn, Utsu!
1: <laughs> that's actually a higher body count than Tutankhamun.
0: Well, okay, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I say amazing, <laughs> I mean, it, I do mean horrifying, but, you know incredible
1: yes I mean as coincidences go that is quite a string of coincidences yeah (laughs) and it also I think the thing which gets me with this one is you know usually with a cursed object someone is doing something stupid yes this was a bunch of scientists being scientists which you know sometimes scientists can do stupid things in enthusiasm but this was just a bunch of people who found a corpse mummy, uh, found a, an ice mummy buried in the ice and did what you would expect scientists and archaeologists to do. Um, and apparently it was not appreciated <laughs> at all. <laughs> I think there was even a suggestion that with... Uh, ooh, what was his name? Uh, Conrad Spindler... Not not Conrad Spinland, no. Uh one of the guys, yeah, Helmut Simon. Helmut Simon, who was one of the tourists who found Otzi in the first place. The fact that he died almost exactly where Otzi was found, um, was suggested by many people that the mountain required a replacement sacrifice of some kind.
0: Okay, that's a that's a really interesting idea that it, that it wasn't actually Otzi. It's more like the mountain. The mountain yeah. is the thing, which is that's a really really terrifying but really really cool idea yeah okay
1: so i mean there's obviously if you've done any mountaineering or you know someone who does mountaineering um it's it's a really dangerous pastime it's a dangerous sport um it's there's there's a big high factor to it and obviously not high as in terms of getting up in the air but in terms of pitting yourself against nature yeah you have to be really really careful particularly if you're in some of the more dangerous places, so, yeah, Austria, and, you know, if you were going up the Eiger or something in Germany, I mean, <laughs> the Eiger, for example, is that there's ice mummies all the way up of people who just haven't made it to the top and are frozen to death, and they're, they're at a, the north face of the Eiger, where people cannot, li- they literally cannot recover the bodies, so... um yeah, mountains do do this occasionally when we're, we have enough hubris to try and tackle them and we get things wrong.
0: <laughs> okay. All right, I've got one for you. Okay. Okay. So um, you're a Stephen King fan? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I assume that you have read or are very familiar with Christine.
1: I have not read Christine. I'm not interested in his car books.
0: Oh, okay, all right. Well, perhaps you'll be interested in this. Um, a haunted car uh, from the uh, 1960s called not... Golden Eagle.
1: I was going to say it's not James Dean's haunted. Porsche, no, no, is no,
0: it? no, 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 no. Don't worry. <laughs> I, we we covered that last one. This is another. This is another haunted car. This is another haunted car called Golden Eagle. Um, it was a Dodge 330 Limited Edition, um, which was made in 1964. A relatively normal-looking car, but this car has a kill count of 14, <laughs> supposedly.
1: I um, mean, that's horrifying. But on the other hand, it's a car, and cars are quite dangerous yes,
0: anyway. But this is a very. But the, this is the thing: is that the car itself. The car, so far as I can tell, never crashed. But there's been a lot of deaths around it. Um, And it's been dubbed as the most evil car in the US. So let me tell you a little bit about Golden Eagle. So Golden Eagle originally was owned by the police force um, in Old Orca Beach. Um, And it was associated with the death of three separate policemen. Now, you might think, okay, all right, they're policemen, they're driving this car, that means they're, you know, likely to, they might have gotten involved in shoot-ups or dangerous things. You might think. But here's the creepy thing. All of these policemen died um, through, in, in cases of murder-suicide. So each of them killed their families... And then themselves, three separate men who Hmm. all drove this car. So that's the first thing. Not a great association to have. Um, And kind of creepy for a lot of reasons. I don't actually have the names. I tried looking up the names of the policemen who died, but I I haven't been able to find them. All I know is that very rapidly, uh, the car was gotten rid of... um, the police force didn't want it. So it was sold, and it was sold to a local uh, named uh, a family, the Allen family. Now, um, apparently, the car had absolutely no problems with the Allen family. Um, it would just potter pot along quite happily with the Allen family, apart from a few occasions when the doors would apparently fling open while they were on the highway. <laughs> but other than that, they had no problems uh, with the Allen family. And it was just, um, but its scary reputation never left, and the local community um, still very much disliked it, Um, which actually led two separate local church groups um, to come together to try and sort of destroy the car to get rid of the evil uh, spirits they felt, or or, or the the curse which was on the car. Um, So they actually ended up vandalising the car, Okay. Okay. So they vandalised the car. The two leaders of the separate church groups both got killed by an eighteen-wheeler. In fact, I think it was separate eighteen-wheelers. Both got, both were killed, crashed by an eighteen-wheeler. So they were, so the um, separate eighteen-wheeler trucks both were killed by them. Um, Meanwhile, the other thirty-two members of the two groups. Um, faced a number of different near-death experiences including four of them now i really want you to consider this four of them were struck by lightning
1: okay statistically that's not very likely (laughs)
0: exactly um so following this incident uh, apparently um the the this the the car was also involved in a couple of what, a couple of other problems which is that um there were two deaths of children um between 1960 and 1980 separate times uh, in front of the the house the allen's house where the car was so the kids were playing in the street again this is not at the same time this is years apart kids were playing in the street they got hit by cars and they were flung into the air and struck the golden eagle so they either one struck its bumper uh, the other struck its bonnet and both died and then finally the latest victim um is that apparently one kid um was uh dared to go and touch it by a few others and he did so and a few weeks later apparently he he came home and he just killed his, his household pet hmm. um, and then <laughs> that's it so I was like he killed his household pet, that's awful and then I looked at my notes and I'm like oh and apparently his whole family as well <laughs> <laughs> right. he, he, he killed his pet his household family and then he burned his house to the ground and no one can tell why. Yes? Yeah. So that's horrifying. Um, so the the current the current owner of the car is a is a woman named Wendy Allen, um, and she's known as the Sea Witch of Old Orchid Beach. Um, so uh, <laughs> which, well, who wouldn't want that? Who would not want that? <laughs> And apparently, yeah, the, this car has been passed down in her family for generations. It's been in the family for the last 40 years. Um, and she herself has never felt, she's never had any, any cause to feel afraid of it. Um, she, she says they've never had any difficulty with it at all. And she's not afraid of it in the least. But um, supposedly the car does now have an incredibly high kill count and an even higher attempt to kill count.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that, it, that is quite. I mean, I have got one that has a, a rival body count, but you know, not very many cursed objects quite go quite that high. Yeah, and in quite a dramatic fashion as yeah. well. Yeah, so.
0: it's it's the struck by lightning thing which really gets me.
1: It's like, what were you doing, <laughs> dancing out on a hill in a thunderstorm? What <laughs> for? If you get that,
0: so there you go. That's golden eagle. Um, the most evil car in the u.s
1: hmm. interesting there is always something a little bit okay well two points this was something interesting and a bit spooky about cars anywhere i think it's because you can get very fond of your car because it carries you places hmm. and you can view it with a certain amount of personality um and you know maybe you give it a nickname or what have you um but on the other hand you know, there's Shawna Maguire has this sort of thing in her Ghost Road books where she said, "And what if the things we love start to love us back a little bit? And what if that goes sour?" Which I've always found quite interesting. Um, but the other thing is, when it's a, when it's a, one of these cars that's that's dicey, it's never something like a Morris Minor or a Metro or a Skoda or someone's three wheeler, is it? It's Always a sexy yeah, car so like a said, Dodge or yeah. a
0: Porsche. <laughs> Yeah, god forbid.
1: <laughs> god forbid it just be it, it, it's, it's a just regular this regular looking car. Little, little Nova that was made in 1980 <laughs> in sort of a sort of beigey brown color.
0: Got a got a got a haunted Toyota Yaris. And I say that with great affection because I love my little Toyota Yaris but by god. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, mine too. Um but you. Yeah, you don't look at it and go, "Well, that's sex on wheels." This is no, it's a functional little car that I know isn't going to break down on me. <laughs> huh. Okay, right. Let's move on to the Maori Tenga. Ooh. Um, I, I like this one because this is basically what happens when two cursed objects meet each other.
0: <laughs> Do they battle it out?
1: <laughs> they battle it out. Um, uh, first of all. I've heard Maori people say Maori and I've heard them say Maori. I'm sticking with Maori for now because that's what I've always heard. But if I'm pronouncing it wrong and you happen to be Maori, Maori, whatever, let me know. I'm quite happy to correct myself. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: The translation for Maori tanga is the beloved treasures of the Maori people, basically. Mm. Um, They can be found in various different museums across New Zealand, but most especially in the Museum of New Zealand, in Te Papa Tongawara, which is in Wellington, New Zealand. Cool. Um, they are they encompass a massive array of weapons and spirit masks and other items, many of which have been loaned generously by the indigenous Maori people mm-hmm. to museums and things. Um, it's something actually that that is a little aside that I find New Zealand really does seem to get get right in terms of they have their their white and mixed population and their Maori populations and they have all sort of integrated and generally most of the time get on very well together and there's lots of cultural sharing it's really inspirational to see Um, and a lot of that is is down to everyone being very honest about everything that's happened so Mm. aside from that um (laughs) in this particular museum in Te Papa um the museum guidelines had the usual things like uh no touching No touching any of the exhibits,
0: yep.
1: uh, no smoking, no drinking, no eating food in the exhibit room, wear comfortable shoes because you're going to be walking a long way. Mm. And then it had something which said, no pregnant women and no women who are currently menstruating.
0: Right, okay.
1: Um, now, people were rather annoyed at this, and the museum came back with, well, you have to understand... These have been generously lent to us by indigenous tribes, mm-hmm. and the cultural significance um, of this and the, the spiritual understanding is that many of these items are tapu. Uh, now, tapu is where we get the word taboo from. Uh, Captain James Kirk, not <laughs> Captain James, Kirk, Captain James Kirk. Oh my God, <laughs> genre crossover!
0: <that>. Not Kirk. <laughs> Kirk. Kirk appears. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: three maori women are already pregnant <laughs> oh my god it's kirk no sorry no captain james cook the explorer from the from the 1800s yes um obviously came across the concept tapu and it became it sort of slurred into the word taboo which is where we get the idea of things being taboo yeah. um tapu things in itself are not intrinsically bad as long as you observe the rules, and absolutely anything can be tapu. So a lake, uh, a mountain, an object, somebody's left leg. <laughs> tapu just basically means you don't touch it, you avoid it, and if there are other stipulations around it, you you kind of basically you're trying not to cross the beams, mm. Ghostbuster style. So you yeah. just just stay away and you respect things. The problem is that pregnant women are also considered tapu under Maori culture. And so are women who are in the middle of their period, also tapu. And if you collide two things, you know, you're supposed to keep two things which are tapu away from each other. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it causes all kinds of disruptions to the natural balance and, and evils and things will result. Um so that's why the the warning on the sign was no pregnant women, no menstruating women. Anyway, things escalated, and for some reason it became far more important that women got to make a thing about feminism rather than people respected some cultural boundaries. It de- depends which side you stand on. I can see both sides of this argument. Yeah. But I think if it was me, I would be more inclined to go... Okay, I personally think it's silly, but then I'm not part of your culture and it doesn't do me any harm not to go there while I'm pregnant or menstruating. Yeah. I can go another time. I think I'd do that rather than, oh no, no one can stop me doing anything I want kind of thing. Because you know what? Having your rights reinforced is not about you impinging on someone else's rights. Yes. In my opinion. But I don't know what happened in that respect. We don't know that any, any woman who would technically be considered tapu at that time would have come into contact with the the Tenga. Um, but things did start to happen. Now, I'm going to explain why the Tenga, some of the items were considered tapu. Many of them were weapons which had killed people in battle. Right. In Maori culture, when Atua, a warrior, dies on the battlefield, his spirit is absorbed into the instrument of his destruction and he becomes part of the weapon, which is why they are tapu and why you must handle them with respect. Um and as we know you don't put two tapu things next to each other because bad bad juju happens. Right. (laughs) Anyway, the museum got fed up of of people constantly complaining and you know the livid letters and the, the threats and things that people seem to feel it's appropriate to make when when they don't get their own way (laughs) which is what it amounts to in my opinion and they just said well look they're a suggestion we will leave it up to your conscience as if you decide what you want to do here Mm -hmm. and again obviously no one kept a record to say whether any pregnant or menstruating women went through and had a look at the Maori Tenga but it became very noticeable that things then started to happen because in 2015 um the museum curators suddenly noticed that many of the items had been damaged somehow. Um, And then the following year, the fire sprinkler system malfunctioned and damaged even more items in the collection. Then later that same year, in 2016, there was a small localised earthquake which damaged the facility and more items in the collection. (laughs) In 2018, the staff then discovered that the impressive whalebone collection, which was included in the Maori Tenga, had contracted a harmful and quite rare species of mould which was disintegrating the whalebones. So, you know, it's not human loss of life and things, but the whole idea of um, putting two tapu things next to each other and causing an imbalance, which then is reflected in the natural world, is definitely sort of there in the pattern. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Just wow.
1: I, I'm I'll admit I'm a little bit biased because I find Maori culture really fascinating because despite the restrictions on menstruating and pregnant women being tapu, it's not meant as a mark of disrespect. Um, women were given far more freedoms in Maori culture than you see women in other cultures even now today. Mm. So um, uh, perhaps that's why I didn't find it offensive. I was just like, no, okay, I I get it. That's part of your cultural custom. I can kind of see where you're coming from.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can. I can see that. I can understand that. that, uh, that, That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: found that one really, really interesting.
0: (laughs) Okay. That's fantastic. All right. Uh, from New Zealand to Cyprus. I've got one for you, Jules. Okay. So this is The Woman from Lem.
1: Okay. That sounds like it should be sort of a, a medieval cautionary tale.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and it might very well be. Okay. So um, The Woman from Lem, or Lempa, um, Lempa is in Cyprus. So in 1878, because it's always the Victorians, a small statue, which was uh, a small limestone statue, was discovered in Lempa in Cyprus. Um, It was dated to be from around 3500 BC. And it it was found among sort of natural sort of limestone deposits, um, but also quite close to some copper deposits um, sort of around around the area. Now, it is a very peculiar shape. Um, In in some ways, it's quite similar to other ones, which is it has an almost crucifixion, like a cross shaped uh, shape, but it's it's a little bit different. It differs from a lot of the other statues. Um, and basically, it's believed that it was, it might have been a very a ceremonial statue, but that this was a statue of uh, fertility of some kind. And if you have a look at it, you can kind of understand why this might be a fertility goddess. However, very quickly, it went from being believed to be a statue of fertility to a harbinger of death. okay so um according to the story this is how it goes um now before we start it should be noted that there is absolutely no archaeological records of an excavation or the actual discovery um, of the statue which is crazy there's literally nothing there are no records that, that say where it was found um, really or, or what the dig was or anything like that all we know is that it was discovered in 1878 um, but we don't even know the name of the founder who discovered it um okay so this basically because of that there have been some difficulties in terms of you know uh, correlating what what really happened and, and the whole rest of the story, but despite that, it does still have a fantastic um, history, and it has been known the statue is, is called sort of the goddess of death because it has a lot of fatalities connected to anyone who's either owned it or touched it. So this is this is how the story goes: the first owner of the um, the Lady of Lemp uh, was a guy named Lord Elfonte. Um And he, he owned it um, during the time where there was a British colony in Cyprus. Um, however, six years after buying the statue, his whole family had passed away. So um, that was all, all, all eight of them had passed away, including himself. The statue then moved on, um, and it was bought by a guy named Ivor uh, uh, Menucci. Um, It it, it sort of moved its way into Europe. Um, And again, the same thing happened, except this time it was four years. Within four years, his entire family had died, including him. So once again, the statue disappears off. So right now we we have a body count of 11 people. The statue then moves on once more um, and is owned by a guy named Thompson Noel. And once again, within four years, the entire family had perished.
1: <laughs> He's like, leave the statue alone, leave guys. Leave the statue alone, own,
0: guys. Stop accepting <laughs> it. So the statue eventually um, was sort of acquired by... Um, sorry hold on a second my notes are jumbled I can't actually find the fourth name all I know is that it the it, fourth person acquired the statue and once again they died their wife died their two children <laughs> died um so this is four families the statue has passed through and everybody's died so uh But not everybody, actually. Before before everybody in the family could die, the the remaining sons said, we're getting rid of this thing. Yeah, And they donated it to the Royal Scottish Museum, uh, which is in Edinburgh. But the statue of death wasn't quite finished. That's right. It had one more victim in it. (laughs) The curator of the museum... Who was the one who handled the statue? Died within the year. <laughs> um, it is now sat very safely behind a glass case, um, untouched, um, and no one can lay their hands on it and receive the terrible curse of the Lady of Lem. <laughs> now this is all very very good but as I mentioned earlier on um, the fact of the matter is, is that there are very few records of it and actually when people sort of started to examine the story closely they found that there were no records of a person named Lord Elfonte, Um, and that there were also uh, no records of Ivor Manucci um, except in articles about this particular story so except in articles which are regurgitating the story itself we also don't have any records of Lord Thompson um, Noel um, or and that's the last guy uh, Sir Alan Biverbrook <laughs> but what's even weirder and this is, this is the icing on the cake so there's no records of any of these people just like there's no records of exactly where the statue was found who found it etc is that um Online searches of the National Museum of Scotland's archives don't even show the item in, its in, in the inventory. So does it exist at all? Does it exist at all? Good question. <laughs> there are pictures of it, but it's no, who knows? Who knows? Does it exist? Doesn't it exist? No one knows where <laughs> it comes from. But there you go.
1: Statue's so, so like, I just wanted to be left alone. Yeah. <laughs> and you put me in a bloody museum. Leave
0: me alone. Put me back.
1: So, but How many people go. do I have to kill before you get, <laughs> you get the idea?
0: But the, the idea is, that how many people do I have to kill and completely erase from history? So, yeah, whether this is a fabrication which was designed to make it look more interesting, um, or whether... There is some truth to it. We do not know. But that is the woman from Lem.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, from Cyprus to Japan, uh, talk very briefly about the Muramasa swords, uh, which are around 500 years old and can be found in many museums and private collections across Japan. Uh, And if you like katanas and wakazashis like I do, then they are absolutely gorgeous pieces of work. Um, they're art. They're basically art in in deadly blade form, in my opinion. Um, Senga Muramasa was uh, he became an infamous swordsmith uh, sometime, uh, well, sometime during the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, Mur- uh, Muramasa, uh, obviously, Japanese katanas and things they were made in such a way that they were you know the swords themselves are exquisite then they took nearly a year for each one to be made because the metal had to be folded around a thousand times every time you fold a piece of metal you allow impurities to rise to the surface which is why you got that very light very strong steel
0: Mm.
1: which could you know i mean if you look at the, the shape of a japanese blade the 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 story is obviously that it can cut anything. It, that's not specifically true. If you're going up against someone in rhinoceros hide armor, then yes, you've got a good chance of getting through the armor. If you're going up against somebody who has a gun, then you're going to be you're going to be less well off. Strangely enough, because gun beats sword, unfortunately. Um, that said. Muramasa's blades were so sharp and deadly and well-made that people began to believe that it was impossible he could have created something that dangerous that did not have kind of a spirit of its own. Mm -hmm. There were various different stories. Um, One was that he was a violent madman who imbued every sword he made with his own lust for blood. Another was that he made a dark and deadly deal with yokai in order that the swords themselves were kind of possessed of this need to draw blood oh. and once they'd been drawn they could not be satisfied until they had tasted blood either that of your enemies or if you could not kill anyone with the sword you then had to kill yourself i think this is an example of how an urban legend even a 500 year old urban legend springs <laughs> up um a- allegedly shogun iyasu tokugawa who was the founder of the tokugawa dynasty during mm. the shogunate period um, uh, outlawed the swords and he had good reason to do so because so many people that he, uh, or members of his family and people that he served with were killed by these swords on the other hand, you know including his, his son, his father, his grandfather etc on the other hand if you flip it over uh, Iyasu himself had a Muramasa blade because they were the best, so did his son, his grandfather, his father pretty mm-hmm. much everyone who worked with him so <laughs> It's kind of like, well, if you surround yourself in this highly sort of militaristic feudal Japan um, with these specific blades and you arm everyone with them, chances are someone you know is going to die on one of those swords. (laughs) Probably several someones. Um, So it's quite likely that Iyasu actually really highly favoured the swords. And perhaps he outlawed other people owning them because they were good and, ago they were just for him and his followers.
0: Yes that that it stands makes a lot of sense to be honest
1: but even now people cannot resist the lure of a cursed object and those who collect these swords and these swords are very very expensive as in we're looking at sort of like half a million probably for some of them yeah um the part of the appeal is the fact that once drawn they must taste blood this this idea that they are all cursed
0: it's a very popular story, isn't it? Yeah, definitely.
1: Definitely. And I think because uh, if you've done any Aido or you've done any Kobujitsu or anything like that, anything to do with Japanese swordsmanship, mm. um, there is very much a spiritual element to it. I did a little Tangsudo, which is not Japanese, but it does follow the same sort of principles, mm-hmm. ergo, where the sword is supposed to be an instrument that connects you, a mundane human, with heaven. The tip of the sword is heaven and the hill to the, the to the sword is earth. Yeah. And you wield all five elements by wielding the blade correctly. It is sort of the understanding. I've simplified it a bit, but basically that's what it's about. And yeah, there, there was a serious art to it in, in an art where you were supposed to draw the blade and only have to strike once, although in reality, if the other person has a sword and knows how to use it, you're going to have to strike a lot more than that. Yeah. (laughs) But in its purest, most perfect form, the idea is one strike kind of thing. Um, Then, yes, there would seem to be something magical about that, particularly if other people weren't allowed to own blades, which many people weren't. Yes. Um, Farmers and things. There's there's a reason why you have uh, the entire Okinawan weapon system, which basically consists of modified farm and fishing implements for example <laughs> because we weren't allowed swords
0: yeah absolutely and, uh, again i can just totally see why this story would continue because blades hungering for blood and um you know cursed blades and things like that there's a there's a universality to uh, to all of that we we've got versions of that across across the board as it were but yeah it it makes a great story
1: (laughs) yeah it's the whole sort of you know the idea of a magic sword is something that you know a spiritually possessed sword is something that transcends all cultural boundaries so if we've got swords we've got those versions of them somewhere
0: yeah and i think it can also touch on the kind of madness and i use madness in a very particular way that that sort of hits on people who who are in battle yeah you know that kind of hysteria uh, that can sort of strike you the moment you've got a sword and also the kind of power hungriness that can come with people who with warlords and things like that who've had many successful campaigns. yeah, so, yeah definitely yeah I can see how that all kind of might uh, link it. Okay I've got another one for you okay. Um, so we are jumping to now. You're gonna to have to forgive me because I'm probably gonna get this totally wrong. But I think it's Italy. <laughs> okay. Um, and I've, I've probably got this entirely wrong. Um, uh, which is the the Bassano Vase, the cursed Bassano Vase. So uh, where does this story start? It starts around the 15th century. Where a young woman was given a vase, which was made entirely of silver, as a wedding gift. Um, it, it's it's a it was a small um, you know rather nice little vase, but nothing particularly special about it. Um, it. It probably it wasn't very large or anything like that, and it was a simple simple gift, um, but. Very beautiful regardless. Uh, so it was presented to her um, in a, it was Italy, and in a place called uh, Napoli, which is where the, where the story begins, and it was given to her. Now, I think it was that night that she was actually murdered. Uh, she never actually got to attend her own wedding um, because she was killed and she was found dead the following day um clutching the vase in her hands um there was a murder investigation but i don't believe anyone was ever caught so soon after she was buried the bassano vase um was just handed off to another family member just like well, what do we do with this oh you can have it um but once again having received it uh this person died very very shortly afterwards i don't think it was murder though so once again they were like well we've got this vase here and they passed it off to another member of the family who once again <laughs> very quickly after receiving the vase died um at this point the family was starting to wonder whether <laughs> there might not be some kind of connection So they actually presented the vase to a priest and asked him to hide it away. And apparently um, it was buried. Uh, Now, this is where it becomes a bit of an urban legend because no one really knows exactly where it was hidden. So some say that it it was buried um, and that the only person who knew where it was buried was the priest who took it to the grave um, others say that it was actually hidden in a church or in some kind of holy um, site and remains there to its day. Its its evilness captured, um, but no one actually knows where it is. Um, well, they didn't know where it was until it resurfaced. Yes, guys, it's back. Um, it came back. Uh, it sort of it was found again in 1988, um, and immediately upon being rediscovered, it, the bad fortunes once more started again. So it was found by a, a young man who dug it up, as you do. I <laughs> um, he, he don't know what he was digging, but he found it um, and thought, oh, that's nice. Um, and he brought it home. But as he did, he found inside of it a note. And inside was a uh, was a was a note that says, "Beware, this vase brings death." Um, he decided to ignore this. <laughs> As so he took it home, um, and uh, I can't. Remember. This is where my notes again. Sorry. I write this down quickly and now I can't read my writing. Just give me one second. (laughs) So I believe that either he died. um, I think he died and his wife sold it off or that he sold it off. um, And it was actually sold for quite a large amount in auction um, over $2,500. It was bought by a pharmacist who immediately died within 3 months of <laughs> buying it so his family then sold it to a doctor who then also died <laughs> a few months later the guy was like in his 30s so once again it was sold off and this time to an archaeologist this is like like a setup for a joke <laughs> yes <laughs> sold to an archaeologist um and again within 3 months the The archaeologist had died, um, and this is the interesting, the cause of death was a mysterious infection, which again, given the period that it was, that this is set in, I think, well, actually, I mean, it was the 19, you know, 1990s at this point, um, that mysterious infections start to get a little bit more mysterious the closer to to the present that we get.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were well aware of asepsis and things by the 1990s. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it was sold uh, one last time, um, but we actually don't know very much about its final owners, um, except for the fact that once again they died, and this time within one month. Uh, the long line of deaths, obviously... Um, sort of started to catch up with the vase uh and soon enough no one actually wanted to buy it anymore
1: <laughs> strangely
0: um and uh, apparently that the final victims the family of the final victim just tossed it out of an out of a window <laughs> yeah in order to try and break it um so, but here's the fun thing: they tossed it out of the window, where it almost hit a police off. Where it hit a police officer who picked it up, um, fined the family, um, but refused to uh, the, the, the police officer fined the family for throwing stuff, um, and they said, "We'll pay the fine, but for the love of God." please take this vase away so um it was placed in a museum um and I, I i don't know whether it's still there um but it has apparently kind of been hidden away um and buried somewhere in an undisclosed location some people say it's in a lead box um or that it's been put in a cemetery or or both but uh it, it's 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 once more gone to ground and hopefully it will stay there a little longer this time and <laughs> the string of deaths <laughs> will stop
1: yes let's hope so
0: <laughs> so there we go so this is the bassano of italy
1: okay moving on um or moving back rather, sort of to Egypt, um, I'm going to talk briefly about the unlucky mummy. <laughs> um, the unlucky mummy isn't actually a, a mummy, as in it's not a corpse. It's not, it, it was once, but the corpse has actually long since lost to the mists of history. It's actually just the sarcophagus board um, which once covered the mummified remains of a priestess of Amun-Ra. It's 3,000 years old, and has inflicted death and disaster on uncounted numbers of British citizens. Apparently, oh
0: hooray! In 1868,
1: four Oxford graduates picked it up during a trip in- to Egypt. Uh, two died on the trip, allegedly. The third, Thomas Douglas Murray, who did exist, had to have his arm amputated after accidentally shooting himself on a quail hunt <laughs> later that same trip.
0: What? <laughs> How?
1: Get <laughs> me arm. Uh, The fourth graduate, Arthur Wheeler, seemed to make it back unscathed from Egypt, but then lost his fortune, made it back, and then lost it again. (laughs) Um, During that time, the uh, sarcophagus board was photographed, and the photographer died whilst photographing it. A porter died while carrying it. A translator shot himself after attempting to read the hieroglyphics. (laughs)
0: Wow. This is all of all this just tells me is that British people need to leave things where they find them.
1: (laughs) Generally, I am of the opinion that, yes, you should probably leave things where they were. On the other hand, uncounted numbers of things would have been destroyed and lost and we'd know nothing about them. So it's an ill wind which blows no good at all. Back to the story. Most of these stories seem to have originated with Murray himself. Murray was part of a spiritualist club called the Ghost Club, so super original name there. Uh-huh. Um, and he obviously had lost an arm in Egypt and was quite happy to regale listeners with tales of the people this sarcophagus lid had killed. Um, Eventually, the unlucky mummy <laughs> arrived at the British Museum, as, as you'd expect. Um, its fame simply grew from there. A reporter died... Uh, shortly after writing about it and for a while you couldn't die in England without your relatives wondering if your trip to the British Museum was at fault
0: (laughs) (laughs) the British Museum just must be it's teeming with cursed stuff at this point
1: particularly the Egyptian yes the Egyptian section Um, this is where the waters get a bit muddier allegedly it was aboard the Titanic and somehow survived (laughs) It arrived in America in 1912. The British Museum got fed up of apparently all its curators and staff and visitors dying after seeing it um, and sold it to a collector in America. Apparently it then started killing people immediately and the Americans got sort of a bit spooked by this and sold it back to the British Museum. (laughs) Um, It was returning on a ship called the RMS Empress of Ireland, which sank after colliding with the SS Storstad in Quebec in the St. Lawrence River, which also sank, killing over a thousand people.
0: <laughs> okay, alright, I think I think your cursed object wins in terms of body count then.
1: <laughs> uh, wait for the end. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the unlucky mummy was recovered from the Canadian waters of the River St. Lawrence and sold to a German who presented it to Kaiser Wilhelm II, the last German emperor.
0: <laughs> last being the operative word here.
1: Uh, whose son, Franz Ferdinand, was then assassinated, which started the first ever global conflict. (laughs) Oh my
0: god, Charles!
1: (laughs) Now, this makes a fantastic story, and I really love it, it's great, but I have to go back and say that these later stories aren't actually true the unlucky mummy did not leave the british museum during that time in fact while the titanic was sinking while world war one was starting um it was still tucked away safely in the egyptian collection of the british museum and was you know the egyptian collection if you've seen it is is one of the highlights of the british museum i've been seen it myself i've actually seen the unlucky mummy um i'm still here it only left it (laughs) only left the British Museum after 1991 and it was loaned out to two different places which didn't put much stock in the curse and nobody died so and it's now back there in the British Museum and as I've said I've seen it myself so yes it may well have indirectly influenced a few deaths of some four rather incautious graduates in Egypt um, and maybe one or two people since then because you know these things happen Um, But it's more likely to have been an observer through history. Although if you want to ignore everything I've just said and assume it was on the Titanic and somehow survived and then sank another couple of ships and then finally started World War One, that makes a great story. And I understand
0: why. (laughs) That makes a fantastic story. Wow. Fantastic. I say fantastic. I mean, it's not fantastic, but you know what I mean. Yes. That's very, very Interesting. Okay, so the last few ones we've got on the list are ones I think that both Jules and I know, so I think we're just going to sort of present them together. But I'm going to let Jules take the lead because this is like story time and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> okay,
1: so moving from Egypt and London to Sweden, uh, let's talk about the Bjorketorp runestone, which is 1,500 years old.
0: Now, the reason I made Jules do- say that was because I had absolutely no idea how to say that
1: i don't actually speak swedish i know a few swedish people because we've got a uh, we're, we're sort of piled up with a swedish karate club and the swedes are very very nice but uh yes i don't speak swedish and i've probably just mangled that but that's a, an approximation um it's currently since it is a 14 foot high standing stone still where it was originally put in the Bleking in Sweden.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's base, as I said, it's fourteen feet high, which makes it one of the highest carved rune stones. And it is carved in with runes in Proto Norse. So we have the Norse, which you can largely read. You have the Old Norse, which I'm learning to read. Which you know, if you can read that, you can then read the sagas in the original language. And we have Proto Norse, which is even older than that, which is pre Old Norse. Mm. Um, but you know it's still readable if you've got a reliable translator it's standing in an old burial ground in a forest of freestanding um menhirs which are basically the these sort of standing stones and it forms part of a triad circle so there's three stones in that circle and there's other circles moving out concentrically from there right it's iron aged so it's not even as it's not as old as something like stonehenge or avebury or a, a whole bunch of stone circles all around britain um but it's definitely worth mentioning for the messages carved on it. Yes. So, the message on the back, carved in Old Norse, is simply, I predict perdition, which is a little alarming. <laughs> so you've just read the message and that stone, which has been standing there for 1,500 years, is is kind of telling you to lay off. And then you go around the front and you read the Old Norse on that and that says... I, master of the runes, conceal here the runes of power, incessantly plagued by Maleficence. Doomed to the insidious death is he who breaks this monument. I, prophesy destruction.
0: Which is, I mean, that's definitely a way to get people talking over dinner, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you see, the Vikings, when they put up, you know, they didn't do an awful lot of writing, but when they did and they put it in stone, they didn't really fuck around. They didn't want there to be any ambiguity at all. It's like, don't take this down. Don't take this down or else. (laughs) There's various theories as to what the stone is for. Some say it marked the ground of a fallen Viking warrior. Well, they've excavated around the stone and found nothing. Carefully excavated around the stone, I should say.
0: Yeah, but have they excavated the stone itself?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that would be a terrible idea. The stone is literally telling you, it's like literally the instructions are telling you not to do that. (laughs) Um, In which case, maybe it's a cenotaph, you know, a stone which marks um, an an empty grave, basically. Someone whose body could not be recovered. But yeah, there's no real evidence for that. Um, The least interesting in terms of haunted objects or cursed objects sense is that it's kind of a border marker and there is a twin stone which isn't as interesting to look at sort of about 50 miles away which has a has identical curse markings on it which was had fallen down was discovered by a priest and then used to prop up a church wall
0: oh that's nice (laughs) i just thought the priest is like meh we just
1: need some rock. It's fine. I don't. I don't suppose he could read the Proto Norse on him. it. I'm kind of like, oh, there's all these markings. That's fine. We'll stick it in the church wall.
0: This is this is the epitome of that meme, which is uh this this sign can't hurt me hurt me because I can't read.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it, it could have been that it was part of a series of stones across the country marking up the borders of land. In which case, it's kind of that's a very extreme way of marking your borders. It's kind of, death, maleficence, doom, destruction. How dare you? Don't don't break the stone. Um, at some point in the stone's history, allegedly a farmer tried to clear the surrounding land, presumably because he wanted to farm it. Yep. He piled wood around the stone and set it alight, and intended to pour ice-cold water over, it, hoping hoping that the sudden heat and cold would break the stone and you know cause it to move shatter into smaller pieces which are easier to move because a 14-foot-high lump of, of stone is, is not going to be an easy task. No. Certainly pre-crane days anyway. Um, but a mysterious wind blew up and threw the standing stones and the it, it, it simultaneously extinguished the wood surrounding the stone and blew the fire into the farmer's clothes and he was burned alive.
0: Well... He was warned, whether he could read it or not. <laughs> warned.
1: I have to say, there's no, there's nothing you can verify. This is this is a common sort of story around the rune stone, but it doesn't, you know, you can't verify it. Other than sort of local law suggests that this is a story that grew up around the stone. There's yeah. no names, there's no places, there's no dates or anything. But you know, just looking at what's carved on the stone, it, it's an interesting look at the mindset of the time. <laughs>
0: that is very very cool what i like to think is that it was just a guy who put it up as a feature and having gone through all of that effort to put it up put a note basically (laughs) saying don't move my stones
1: yeah because it's quite an oddly shaped stone it's got this weirdly sort of sort of conical but little spirally at the top yeah and after you've put it up it's kind of like yeah no don't touch this (laughs) this is going nowhere
0: That is okay. very very cool.
1: So we're moving from <laughs> we're moving from Sweden to Central Asia yes. in the late 14th century. Uh, this is the tomb of Timur. Uh, Timur was this scourge of Central Asia in the late 14th century. In his 35 years, he well, in the in within three and a half decades of you know becoming a man and starting wielding swords and stuff. He conquered the region, massacred the populations, destroyed cities, and constructed towers from the skulls of his victims.
0: Well, that's definitely a a talking piece again.
1: He might, 600 years later, have also uh, sicked sicked Hitler on Russia by cursing his own tomb. But we'll get into that in a bit.
0: Lord okay take us through it
1: okay Timur was born in 1336 in Transoxia uh, Transoxiana which is now Uzbekistan and I'm going to call it Uzbekistan because I can actually pronounce that slightly better than the original name (laughs) he was a mercenary who was especially bloodthirsty and vicious and he eventually became a great leader um, it, it's very noticeable that in the area of Uzbekistan, he's, he's actually considered something of a folk hero now, despite the fact that he was styling himself after his supposed ancestor Genghis Khan, but wanted to be even more of, basically even more of a, a bloody tyrant and a menace. He wanted a better body count than Genghis Khan. That was his ambition. Um, apparently his death tolls were in the millions, But he was also a patron of the arts and sciences. He filled Samarkand with scholars, artists, physicians and scientists. And he had great structures created. Um, Many of the really interesting medieval buildings, their architecture, were built during his particular era, during his empire. Um, Even though he preferred not to live there, he preferred to live out in the tents with his armies. Um, he became known as Tamerlane in Europe because he'd lost a couple of fingers. I don't know what the etymology of that is. I'll have to look into it. Um, but, you know, let, let's just say that for someone who basically disappeared off the map of history after this, this huge, huge thing, because I'd never heard of him until wow. I started like, poking into this. Um, I think it's fascinating that he had this sort of level of kill count and he did all this and he basically built up an entire empire out of Central Asia. And most of us don't know who he is. So he was noticed in Europe. Um, in 1405, he was on his way to add China to his empire, quite ambitiously. Uh, but he died en route to Kazakhstan, aged 68, in, the, in a blizzard that blew up. Um, his body was brought back to Samarkand, and he is still considered a hero in Uzbekistan. His term, his tomb is a supposedly cursed, as we found out in 1740 when a warlord named Nadir Shah stole a great slab of black jade which uh, Timur had been buried under. The slab broke in two and Shah suffered ill luck until he was convinced to return the slab. And then everything is quiet again until we get to 1924. <laughs> in 1924, Uzbekistan became part of the domain of the USSR, which was obviously now defunct. Um... On June the 19th, 1941, the curse story grew more intense. The Russian Archaeology Association became curious about Timur, and they excavated his body under orders from Stalin, Um, even though the Uzbekistanis were kind of like, no, 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 don't touch that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't take him away from us. Oh, no. Part of it was kind of like the tomb is cursed. This tomb is cursed. And part of it was kind of like how we in England would react if someone said they'd found the grave of Robin Hood and they were going to dig it up and just take his bones away to another country. We would yeah. not be cool with that. Um, the team was led by a man called Mikhail Gerisimov. He discovered a five foot six inch body. So, you know, Timo wasn't actually that tall for the time. Um, then the body was missing two fingers and had been injured in the hip. And apparently that is how he somehow came to be called Tamerlane in Europe. Again, it's something to do with his fingers. I'm very curious about this name now. Anyway, they shipped the body to to Moscow. Days later, Hitler and Germany invaded the Soviet Union. (laughs) And people, (laughs) the, the Russian people and the Uzbekistanis, and you know, basically the crossover could not get out of their head that disturbing the grade of this warlord had caused this final thing to happen. Um... And In, it's interesting because apparently an inscription on the outside of Timur's tomb reads, when I rise from the dead, the world shall tremble. And then on the interior of his tomb, "Whoever, whosoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I.
0: So oh, you can wow. Kind of,
1: okay. You can kind of, You can kind of see where the stories came from. Strangely enough. Two years later, when the analysis on Tima's body had been completed, he was the body was returned, and the Soviet forces almost immediately defeated the Nazis at Stalingrad.
0: That's incredible.
1: So, uh, you know that it's very thin in terms of cursed objects, simply because not very much happened. But apparently, if you just leave him alone or put him back when you are finished,
0: that's fine. <laughs> That's really, really interesting.
1: <laughs> I just find it so interesting that he, you know, his empire lasted less than a hundred years. You know, yeah. his descendants weren't able to keep it up. He, when you say Genghis Khan, everyone knows who Genghis Khan is, or they've got a vague idea. They've heard the name. No one's heard of Timur. It's yeah. just really strange, and yet he was probably as vicious and bloodthirsty as Genghis Khan.
0: That is, I've never heard of him. That's really no. interesting.
1: Yeah, so I, I need to find out more now. I am curious. I'm
0: very curious. Okay. <laughs> we may come back to him. Okay. um, Let's talk about the Crying Boy paintings. These are
1: going creep me out because <laughs> I'm weird. I've got this weird thing about paintings with people in them, which, you know, paintings of, I don't know. It's like the, the Morello orphans who just gaze out of paintings with preternaturally huge and sorrowful eyes. It's like I can see what the artist was trying to create, but I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't want that in my house. Yeah. And the crying boy paintings, why the crying boy paintings are a series of paintings of a child weeping that were created in sort of them through the 1950s, 60s and 70s. So they're not even that old, really, in yeah. historical terms. And you could just buy them in department stores to hang up in your home and make it look like you're a little bit classy or, you know, had a weird yeah. thing about crying children.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, because nothing nothing says classy more than pictures of crying children.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is a bit disturbing. Anyway, this whole thing comes out of 1980s, um, <laughs> shall we say, 19, 1980s urban legend type thing. Um, and... The sun, as in the tabloid, blew it out of all proportion with a killer headline, which was uh, the was it the blazing curse of the crying boy painting. Um, so obviously it was a slow news day, and in the 1980s they dug up this thing. Basically, there was the Hall family and they had a large, beautiful home which burned to the ground, and the only thing that survived was a department store painting of a crying boy. Uh-huh which, you know, you know, most firemen will tell you that there is usually one random object that survives a fire, um, which is horrible, but, but true. But what kind of cemented it in people's imagination was the fireman's statement. He said that since the 1970s, 50 examples and more of this type of painting have been accumulated by the fire department, because they were the ones that survived fires. He'd attended many house fires, and the thing that survived was the crying boy painting.
0: Right. Presumably because of something that it was made with.
1: Well, we we, will, we shall get into that. Anyway, the sun loved this. They pitched a headline, and at that point, people who had pictures of crying children in their home, because, you know, to add a bit of class suddenly got quite panicky about it and the sun found themselves absolutely bombarded with paintings of crying children. (laughs) Instead of getting upset about it, they kind of decided to roll into it and they had a big ritual burning on a pyre of these paintings, over 5,000 of them, on Halloween that year. (laughs) And the legend grew from there. The boy in the paintings was allegedly uh, Don Barillo, who accidentally killed his parents in a fire in Spain. After that, no matter where the young orphan was sent, fire followed him, earning him the nickname Diablo. Um, He was kept and abused by a priest and then by the artist who painted his likeness. And now if you have a painting of him in your home, your house will burn down around it and leave the painting um apparently the boy himself died in an explosion in the 1970s again this is an example of an urban legend being created because none of that is true yeah <laughs> when they finally did track down the artist they found out that the name that appeared on these paintings was a pseudonym for someone who painted many many other things as well and that this was a, a correlation not a causation thing however it so in captured people's imaginations that it has just stayed and I have to say, if you offered me a Crying Boy painting, despite the fact you know, I, I wouldn't have one anyway because I find them just creepy, just generally. But again, I'd be kind of like, you know what, why take the chance? <laughs> I'd be like, no, I'm not going to put that in my attic. Why would I put that in my attic? Bad things <laughs> happen with paintings in attics, okay?
0: <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, I think because the Crying Boy painting has so much infamy that like they even have a nodded reference to it in in things like the sims game where it's not it's not a crying boy i don't think it's it's a crying clown or a clown painting or something like that which is weirdly cursed (laughs) or or, i think i seem to remember because i I do remember when i was younger playing it and being like where is this come from and then i heard about the crying boy paintings um so (laughs) It, yeah. it's, it has a lot of infamy attached to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, they. I think in the early 2000s, they ran one of those ghost hunter type programs and uh, one of the guys from it got hold of a Crying Boy painting. He bought it off a family, who still had it and still had the house, by the way. <laughs> and he decided to set it fire and he posted that he was going to post the video on YouTube. And... He was doing this all sort of live on YouTube and he set a fire to it and the painting would not catch fire, as in the, the just the corner would singe and no matter what he did to it, the painting would not catch fire. Later, he then went into what it was backed with and the wood was treated with a fire-retardant varnish. So what would happen is in a house fire, the string would burn and snap, the painting would fall face down uh-huh. so that the fire wouldn't get to it and then the varnish was flame retardant, so by the time the firefighters rocked up, yes, everything else might be destroyed. But the painting would probably be almost perfect still. Yeah. So there you go. Easy, easy example. Easy, and yet, easy explanation. Easy <laughs> explanation. And yet I would not have a crying <laughs> child or a clown or a clown painting <laughs> in my home. Fantastic. Um, okay, the final the final one that I will talk about today is the dybbuk box um (sighs) this is fantastic simply because it just looks at the whole yeah it's amazing how people will (laughs) the the whole idea of being able to purchase a piece of the supernatural Mm -hmm. has been with us since the medieval era when people were buying saint's finger bones um and it's something that's never left. You've had whole castles with ghosts attached, imported to America, for example, and then yeah. rebuilt, presumably with the ghost, a very confused ghost with nothing to do with <laughs> America. doesn't know the new world exists, still attached to this castle. Um, and I just find this absolutely fascinating. So uh, the Dibbet box is basically a small portable wine carrier, as in it's sort of the size of a backpack. And it probably originated in Spain and it's carved with, you know, it's, you know, it's not a particularly ancient object at all. It probably originates in the sort of 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it's carved with grapes and vine leaves and stuff. And anyway, um, the, the guy who first found it went along to, he was an antique dealer and he went along to a house sale when someone died. Um, to see if he could find any good pieces. Uh, Allegedly, the woman who had died had been a Jewish Holocaust survivor and had brought the piece over with her from Europe. This is in America. Uh, Anyway, he found this small wooden box in the house sale, um, decided, yes, he really liked that, bought it for a song. And when he got it back, he discovered that it, it contained things. It had two 1920s wheat pennies in it, two locks of hair, a small granite statue with the word Shalom written on the bottom, a dried rosebud, a wine cup, and apparently a dibbok, although the dibbok was not visible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just pop it in with the dibbok, darling.
1: <laughs> anyway, shortly after setting it in his antique shop, his shop was trashed. He then started seeing shadowy forms, smelling ammonia and having hag-type nightmares where something would climb on his chest in the night and smother him. Um, severely spooked... <laughs> He, he sort of tried to palm it off to someone else, thinking, you know, well, maybe it's me, maybe I'm specific, specifically kind of sensitive to this. Um, I'm imagining it, but I can't have it in my shop. Um, everyone he tried to give it to or sell it to gave it back to him, including his mother, who suffered a stroke shortly after accepting it from him. I mean, why would you give it to your mother at that point?
0: Seriously, why?
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so... What Kevin Manis did was he put the box up for sale on eBay in the early 2000s. He described exactly what it contained and he put everything it contained back in it. Presumably the Dibbuck as well, even though he couldn't see it. <laughs> and he described exactly what had happened around it. The box sold for $140, which was something like eight times as much as he would paid for it. Um, it sold to Josef Nitschke who, upon receipt of it, began to have strange allergy-type symptoms, He is smelling strange smells, uh, and electrical devices would randomly just die in the vicinity of the Dybbuk box. Uh, Nietzsche uh, eventually suffered hair loss and visions of dark, blurry things, at which point he then listed it on eBay <laughs> again in 2004, this time, you know, doing exactly the same thing, describing exactly what happened. Sort of genuine haunted divot box, buy it at your peril kind of thing. This time it sold for $280, so he doubled the money he spent on it. It sold to Jason Hoxton. Um, Hoxton claimed both good and ill effects from having the box. He said it actually delayed the aging effect in him and that he now felt better that he'd recovered from a number of health problems. But yes, the blurry figures and the nightmares and the bad smells and stuff were kind of an issue. He must have been a bit of a marketing genius. He then wrote a book about it, which sold very well. He created a website dedicated to it and he discussed it in interviews, apparently because people kept contacting him to say, you know, what's happened with the Dibbuk box? Are you still alive? Kind of thing. And he got fed up. Apparently that's why he did the interviews. Mm hmm. It became a horror movie in 2012. So, if you've seen the possession, you have seen the story of the dibut box.
0: (laughs) Yes, but though, albeit a very um uh,
1: a very edited and
0: a very edited version of the story. In
1: 2017, Zach uh, Baggins from Ghost Adventures, a TV program, bought it for his haunted museum in Las Vegas and allegedly paid ten thousand dollars. So, yes, invest in cursed objects, guys. Apparently, it can really pay off. (laughs) Um. It's now one of the main exhibits in his haunted museum and is surrounded by a double ring of salt and sage. And, you know, he's obviously made his money back on it. Um, The last coda on this is that the rapper Post Malone encountered the divot box when he appeared as a guest on Ghost Adventures in 2018 and soon after suffered a series of high profile misfortunes like a plane he was on had to make an emergency landing. Um, There was a car accident, uh, a burglary, and various other things. And then later after that, um, Zach Baggins sort of released some unseen footage from the Ghost Adventures thing, whereby um, Post Malone was clearly having some sort of episode with the Dibbock box in the Haunted Museum, which sounds like it should be part of Cluedo, but...
0: (laughs) Wow, (laughs) Um, okay.
1: released it as evidence that, yeah, this is a haunted box, guys. Um, or a possessed box or a cursed box either way there it stays in the haunted museum in las vegas if you want to go and see it you can
0: that's terrifying it it always shocks me and yet doesn't really surprise me in the least that um (laughs) You can buy these cursed objects on eBay because it is. There's a business of just cursed dolls, cursed boxes, and things like that. And I've seen a few videos of people's like unboxing because you get it, and it literally comes with a thing saying "Do not open." And I'm like, but you know they're going to, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I find it very amusing. It's like Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, wrote a book called Heart-Shaped Box, where a guy randomly buys a box which apparently contains a ghost. Thinks nothing of it, but kind of does it as a profile thing. And then strange things start to happen, as you would expect from anyone who writes horror. (laughs) I love it. So there you go. And I discovered many, many other cursed objects during my little search for this selection. And I'm sure Madeline did too. But we will. Yeah. We will save those for a future episode.
0: Yes. (laughs) So tell us, guys, what do you think? Um, Have you heard of some of these cursed objects? Have you not heard of them? Do they sell? Do they? send a chill up your spine um, fake, real let us know. Remember you can get in contact with us via our Facebook our Tumblr or our Twitter both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Do let us know about any of your favourite cursed objects which we haven't covered in these two episodes. Before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week and this week I've actually got one for us. Okay, cool. So um in the last episode uh, I mentioned Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik um which Jules has actually recommended in the past and I'm going to recommend another novel by Naomi Novik which is Uprooted.
1: Yes, also excellent.
0: Yes. Um, it's actually meant to be well it's it's not really a prequel it's like a spiritual prequel to spinning silver which was the spiritual uh sequel obviously to uprooted yeah they're both written in a very in in the same style first person um drawing on fairy tales um but sort of reimagining them in a in in a very folkloric way uh beautifully written fantastic really enjoyable premise and i have just really really enjoyed um actually i've actually been listening to them via the audiobook which i've really really liked um i cannot recommend them enough particularly for anyone who loves fairy tales um and who loves folklore particularly any slavic folklore um it's well worth a read
1: yes definitely i concur with that obviously
0: (laughs) And on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening and for tuning in to the first episode of our um, October, our spooky season series, and we'll catch you guys next week.
1: Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com, or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast